didn't say anything earlier, but as you've probably noticed, Pastor Pete and his family are out of town on vacation this week, so I'm going to be in prayer for them. Uh, Pastor Pete is gone, but in his honor, I have grown my goatee back out so that I would look kind of like him. Uh, people tell me all the time that they get us mixed up, and I don't see it. Um, and I won't say who's better looking or not, but, you know, um, you just decide that for yourself. We're going to be looking at the book of Romans. For those of you who know me, Romans is my favorite book in the entire scriptures. And we have been going through together as a church a study on I Am Going. Pastor Pete gave out the books several weeks ago. He's been teaching through a chapter at a time. And we're talking about a chapter today that is actually not in the book. So if you came prepared to go to the nations this morning, you will be ready to go to the nations next week as well. Uh, because, Lord willing, we all should be going to the nations in one degree or another. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the fact that we are going to Mishawaka. We're going to Mishawaka. Now, I'll be honest with you, the past couple of weeks, I've been out of town. I've not even been in Mishawaka. Two weeks ago, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, for school. And so I thought about uh, preaching a message called, I am going to school. But uh, I just couldn't get the same kind of ramifications going for that one as I thought I might be able to. So the next week, uh, Callie and I were in Minnesota for vacation and for me for school. And uh, I thought about saying... Uh, let's do a, a message on I am going on vacation. But then I realized that also did not have the same gospel implications as perhaps something else that we could do. So I went back to the drawing board and I decided why not go back to one of my favorite passages in the scriptures and hopefully bring upon us the obligation, the desire, the love for the city that God has placed us in, Mishawaka, Indiana. And so we're going to be talking about I am going Mishawaka. And before we do that, I'd ask that we bow together in prayer. God, we need you. If we think that we can somehow fulfill the great commission that you've given to us outside of the strength that you empower us with, we are lost. We are lost in ourselves and our foolish pride. And I pray that this morning you would give to us a great desire, a great burden for the city that we call our home. And I pray that we would look into your word and to see the glories of the gospel and to see how we have been changed by those glories and to give you praise for those advances. And Father, I pray that we might see ways in which we still have yet to be changed. And I ask that you help us to do that today, tomorrow, and going forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of believers he has never met. Maybe you have written a letter to somebody before whom you've never met. Perhaps you've written to the President of the United States. Or maybe you've been pen pals with somebody in the military. That term seems very old today. <laughs> maybe you've 
you've messaged or emailed somebody overseas whom you've never met. Your conversation with people like that is often different than somebody whom you grew up with, right? Usually tend to be a little bit more rigid, a little bit more formal. You don't know them the same way. And yet, Paul has never met these Roman believers, but by the tone of this letter and the things that Paul says to them, you would never know that. We see in the first seven verses of the Gospel to the Romans a tremendous proof of a statement that Paul says later in verse 16, that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. One of the great proofs of that is what it actually does to people and their relationships to one another and the relationships between them and God. In these first seven verses, we see a man writing to a group of people from which he would have been completely separated in his former life. Think about it for a moment, folks. Paul is a Jew, and they are pagans. Jews looked at pagans as disgusting people to be separated from. (laughs) Yet, Paul writes to them in the most cordial terms. He writes about their relationship with God. He writes about his own relationship with God. And we get the impression that something miraculous has happened to these people to bring them into such a brotherly relationship with Paul. And furthermore, something marvelous has happened to bring them into a relationship with God. Remember, these are pagan people. And so we see in these first seven verses the proof of the gospel's power to reconcile ruptured relationships. I don't know that we could, we could call it anything else. A relationship between a Jew and a pagan, completely ruptured. A, re- a relationship between people who are poor and people who are rich, completely ruptured. A relationship between white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, sometimes quite ruptured. But the further question that is answered by this passage is this. What is the nature of those relationships between people that have been reconciled by the gospel? And this is one thing that we want to understand is that when the gospel brings people together, it does not bring them together in a neutral state. Folks, the person who's sitting next to you, who's believed in Jesus Christ, who's been changed by the gospel... You are not related to that person in a neutral state. It's not just a home-hum relationship. You're not just casual acquaintances. The fact that you're connected by Jesus Christ means there's so much more there. These Romans and Paul, they're not complacent towards one another. We're going to see that the gospel brings people together in the nearest and dearest terms. It literally makes them brothers and sisters in the Lord so that they have a deep affection for one another. And we'll also see that the gospel brings a new Christian in a new relationship with the world from which he has come. So Paul is writing in verses 8 to 13, the first half of the passage we're looking at today, about how he feels about these particular brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm going to argue this morning that the way that Paul feels about these particular brothers and sisters in Christ 
is an awful lot like the way we ought to feel towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's an example to us. And then when we get to verse 14, Paul shifts from speaking about these believers to how he feels about the entire lost world around him. So what we have here is a twofold emphasis about the new relationships a believer has. New relationships with one another and new relationships with the unsaved world. So, in verses 8 to 13, I want you to see that Paul speaks about three major things concerning his own feelings toward these Roman believers. And like I said before, I believe that these three things also ought to apply in our relationships with one another. So they they are utterly applicable to us this morning. Notice, notice in verse 8 that Paul says, first of all, that he thanks God for the testimony of these other believers. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Specifically this, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, it's proclaimed in all the world. Christians love to hear about other Christians whose faith is making a difference. We love to hear about a brother or sister in Christ who's making an impact on the world around them through faithful gospel living and gospel witness. One of my very favorite parts about our growth group over the past year has been praying with some of the same guys week after week and hearing them tell me about opportunities that they're having at their workplace to be a testimony to the gospel. To talk about how they've got a coworker who's been asking them about the Bible, we've got a coworker who started to read the Bible, we've got a coworker who's asking, Why are you different? There's nothing more exciting to me in those growth groups than hearing week after week how God is drawing some of these people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the testimony of ordinary believers. And I, I don't say that as an offense to any of my brothers in my growth group. I think we would all argue we're ordinary people. And God is using ordinary people to draw people to himself. In this case, Paul has never even met these believers. But he is hearing about their gospel influence around the world and he's excited. He's thankful to hear of God's working through his brothers in Christ. I want to ask you this question. Are you thankful for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you grateful for their faith? You know, we, we greet one another every Sunday morning. And we say hi, and I, I don't know what you guys say, because I rarely get down to greet people, but I, I imagine you're saying something like, hey, how's it going? Uh, you know, how about those, you know, insert sports team name? Or, you know, how are the kids? Is this person feeling better? And we talk about these things. We have lots of common interests. But folks, I believe we ought to be We ought to be sharing our thankfulness for one another. Specifically, we've got to share our thankfulness that God has saved each other. Do we recognize miracles have abounded in this room, in people's lives, because God has saved them? We've been studying the gospel on Sunday nights as well. We've been studying specifically the doctrines of the faith. And we've talked the past few weeks about the doctrine of salvation. And one of the glories of the doctrine of salvation lays against the backdrop of the doctrine of sin in mankind. We are lost 
we are depraved people, folks. If it were not for the gospel of Jesus Christ being worked through the power of the Holy Spirit, none of us would ever believe. Nobody can be argued into the kingdom of heaven. We can give the gospel over and over and over and over again, but if God doesn't work through the power of the Spirit, nobody gets saved. And folks, that's true in your life and that's true in my life. I would never stand here today and proclaim the gospel if the Holy Spirit did not work in my life and change me and make me alive. And so folks, as I look out in the midst here, in this congregation, a couple hundred people here, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, a miracle has happened in your life. Because you didn't save yourself. God did that. God did that. So when we talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ, do you ever just say, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that God has given you faith. You didn't make that faith. You didn't manufacture that. God did that. I'm thankful to see God working in your life. Let's not be ashamed of that, folks. Let's not say, well, I'm I'm afraid to tell them I see them growing because it, it kind of, you know, it implies that they were lesser before. Well, yeah, folks. That's exactly who we were before. We ought to go up to one another and say, I'm so thankful to see how God has been making you a more patient person. I've noticed that. I've noticed the Spirit working. We're not puffing them up, trying to make them proud. We're saying, look at what God has done in your life. Look at what God is doing in you. I've been amazed to see, as we've lived in community in these growth groups now for about three years, I've been amazed to see people changed by the gospel. People who, when I, when I first started to get to know them, I thought, boy, I, I just don't, I don't necessarily see a lot of spiritual growth here. And now I am amazed to see what God is working through them. As they challenge me week after week by what God is doing in their hearts. And folks, are we thankful for that? Are we thankful for what God is doing? More specifically, are you thankful for their gospel impact? Christians are sinners. As sinners, we often forget to be thankful that God has given us one another to be a team in the task of impacting our neighborhoods and our city with the gospel. Folks, do you recognize that as we're called to go to the world, and specifically as we're called to go to Mishawaka, we will never accomplish that mission without the spiritual gifts that God has sovereignly placed in our midst. Meaning, I don't have everything it takes to reach Mishawaka. And you don't either. But God has given us, in this body, in the believers, spiritual gifts to accomplish His mission. And that together, through the, through the efforts that we place in one another and through one another and towards our community, we can reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has promised that He can. Let's not forget to thank God not only for our faith, but for the faith that he has given to others in the church. So certainly the gospel changes our relationships with other believers, with the unsaved. In our relationships with other believers, we ought to be thankful for one another, especially for their gospel influence. But that relationship between Christians goes even further. And I want you to notice this in verse 9. A Christian is not only thankful for believers, but he wants to contribute to that influence through the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit 
in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Folks, Christians are prayerful for one another. As we stop and think about that, we probably would all agree that one of the areas in which we fail the most in our Christian lives is in the area of prayer. And folks, I'm not up here to guilt us. I don't think that's what God wants for us this morning, is to receive uh, a heaping of guilt from this message. But I do want to encourage you in this. I've often struggled in the area of prayer. As a person who lives a lot by task lists and getting things done concretely, prayer can often seem a little amorphous. I can't get my hands around it. And if I can't check it off, I don't want to do it. And about a year ago, God started really working on my heart about my responsibility to pray for the believers in our church. This may sound unspiritual to some of you, but I found that I don't really pray unless I schedule to pray. And if that seems unspiritual to you, fine, whatever works for you, but I found that I would rather pray scheduled than throw out the schedule and stop praying for people. And like I said, about a year ago, God began to convict me of my responsibility as a pastor to pray for the people of this church. You know, there's a whole passage in the book of Acts where the Bible specifically details the establishment of the role of deacons. And their role was to accomplish these tasks in the church so that pastors would be freed up to do the ministry of the word and to pray. And here I am, I'm thinking, I'm a pastor of this church, and I I am not, I'm not praying for everybody in this church. So, I downloaded an app on my phone called the Echo Prayer app, because I'm a millennial and that's what we do. And I spent a couple of hours, and I entered in all of the families of our church into the app, and I began scheduling a reminder for me to pray for them. Now I receive a reminder five different hours every weekday to pray for about five different families. And this allows me to pray for each family in our church every week. And folks, let me be honest, this is, this is not something I can do in my own power, and this is not something that I do perfectly. But folks, this is what the gospel does. It makes us prayerful for one another. Not that it makes us download apps, but I mean, if that's what it takes to make you prayerful for one another, then use the means that God provides, right? Paul says he constantly remembers to pray for these believers, even though he's never met them. Now notice, Paul doesn't, he doesn't detail here the kinds of prayer requests that he prays for the Romans, but if you want a sampling of the kinds of things we ought to pray for one another, look at Paul's other letters like the first chapter of Ephesians or Philippians chapter 1 or Colossians chapter 1. There you'll see all kinds of things that Paul prayed for other believers. And typically Christians are praying for believers' growth, that they might become more like Christ, that they may understand the Word of God, that they may be strengthened by the power of the Gospel, that God would make known to them and confirm in their hearts the truths that they've learned through the reading of the Word of God. And no doubt, these are the kinds of things that Paul was praying about in his prayers for the Romans. So I, just, I want to encourage you this morning. If you want to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'd encourage you to just open up your Bible, 
to Philippians chapter 1 and notice the kinds of things that Paul prays for the Philippians. And pray those things for one family in, in our church this week. Just one family. Pray that God would make alive the power of the gospel. Pray that God would help them to find their joy in Him alone. And then pray for another family next week. And then take another family the next week. And in a couple of years, you'll be able to pray through the congregation that we have in our midst. And you say, well, maybe I want to pray for a couple of families. Fantastic. Pray for a couple of families. But folks, I want us to recognize the gospel changes the relationship that we have with one another. We love each other. We have to pray for one another. Because we care that God would make an impact through the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Like I said earlier, when we're in growth group, we're talking about the ways that God is using us in our lives. I'm hearing about my friend over here who sells. I'm hearing about my friend over here who accounts. I'm hearing about my friend over here who works in a factory. These are all places that I will probably never even visit. And the likelihood that I have any strong gospel impact person to person is very small. But I can have a gospel impact in their lives by praying for them. By saying, God, would you use them? Give them opportunities to influence others with the gospel. The gospel makes us prayerful for one another. But if you'll notice verses 10 and 11, you'll see a third thing that Paul mentions about his relationship with other believers. Paul was asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Folks, Christians desire to see and minister to other Christians. It is innate within the heart of a believer when they hear that other believers are doing a work for the Lord, there is an invisible pull to see them and to minister to them. And this is just not true of any other religion, folks. You don't find this in any other people that are invisibly drawn to others across oceans and continents because they long to see another person of that religion. It just doesn't happen. This is something that the gospel alone does to people. We hear about what the Finks are doing overseas, and we are drawn to them. We want to see what they're doing. We want to see what God is working through their lives, and we want to be a part of that. We want to minister to them. Folks, it's not just people across the world. It's people across the aisle here. And I'm not talking about Republicans and Democrats. I'm talking about the people who sit up in the balcony. I'm talking about the people who sit over here in the annex, the people who sit down here in the main part of the sanctuary. You desire to see and minister to other Christians. It's a funny world we live in, where believers think that somehow they have met their own spiritual satisfaction of going to church by just logging in online and watching a service, or listening to a podcast of somebody preaching. And they say, you know, that fills me up. I'm ready to go for another week. I don't really need a church. It just shows, folks, if we believe that, we don't understand the concept of why God has called us to meet together. It's not just so that we hear somebody stand up here and proclaim the gospel, though that's true, that's important. 
It's not just that we sing to one another, though we minister to each other by doing that. Folks, we're here to minister to one another. We're excited to come to the assembly because God has given us spiritual gifts that He wants us to use to minister to the hearts of the other people in this room. You say, God hasn't given me any gifts. God has given you a gift. At least one gift. And if you don't know what that gift is, I encourage you, start serving other people and find that gift. Because you will never find true spiritual satisfaction in life until you are serving the way that God has gifted you to serve. Christians desire to see and minister to other Christians. This is why sometimes you'll hear Christians who are saved out of lost families say that they feel closer to other believers than they do to their own family. It's because the bond between Christians is closer than blood. It's a spiritual connection that is going to last for all eternity. The blood connection will be ended at death if people are not believers. But believers are bonded together by their faith in Christ and the Spirit of God works in their hearts great love and affection for one another that transcends racial and ethnic and social and financial and economic barriers. Only the gospel does that. Why does Paul want to see these believers? Well, he gives three different reasons for desiring to see them, and I want you to look down with me, please, at verse 11. He says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Number one, Paul wanted to strengthen these other believers. He says, I want to visit you so that through my ministry, you will grow and be stronger and be more powerful in your faith. And folks, that should be our desire. Our spiritual gifts are not to lift up ourselves. Our spiritual gifts are to build up other people. Whether you serve in the nursery and you serve the precious children that we have in our congregation, they're very precious folks. Can I say precious again? That's a spiritual gift. You're serving somebody else so that they can hear the preaching of the Word of God clearly. That is a spiritual gift. When we make meals and bring them to other people who are sick or who are grieving, folks, that is a spiritual gift and a ministry to their hearts. We are building them up. Don't call that a small act of service. That is spiritual ministry. When you labor hours and hours to try to get better at teaching Sunday school, folks, it's not so that you'll look good standing up and proclaiming what you know. It's so that people will be strengthened in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's worth it. It's worth it. But Paul says he wants to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. But second, Paul says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Folks, you recognize Paul says that he wants to be strengthened by the Roman believers. Think about that for a moment. The Apostle Paul, whom we look back upon as a stained glass saint, what did Paul ever do wrong? How could he be strengthened by regular Roman pagan Christians? I know that was doesn't make sense. 
But how could he be strengthened by these people who know nothing of the gospel compared to his mighty knowledge of God? And yet Paul says, I want to be with you because I want to be built up by your ministry to me. Folks, you realize, if the Apostle Paul didn't have every spiritual gift to build himself up, then neither do we. We need one another. And how dare we look at somebody else who's been saved for ten years or a year or a week and say, he has nothing to offer me. Folks, we all have something to offer one another. That's the way God designed us. That's the way God gifted us. He wants us to minister to one another because we need one another. We need the gifts ministered to us. And it's not just, I want to come to you so I can build you up because you need me. It's, I want to come to you because I need you to build me up because I need you. Folks, do you recognize we need each other? You need the person sitting over here who you haven't talked to in a few years. You need that person's ministry. You need the people up there in the balcony whom you've never seen before. Everybody wave. Yep. We need each other. If the Apostle Paul needed other believers, we need other believers. There's a third reason that Paul wanted to see them. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul wanted to see the Roman Christians produce spiritual fruit as a result of his ministry among them. Now here's something, folks. A true Christian is not satisfied with his life until he is producing something visible in somebody else's life. Let me say that again. A Christian is not satisfied with his life until he is producing something visible in somebody else's life. This is what I mean by that, and this is what I believe Paul means by this. He wants to minister among these people Not just that he can check off a box and say, yes, I served on Sunday morning, I did my nursery duty, and I'm moving on to my next responsibility in life. He wants to minister to them in a mentorship sort of way so that he pours into their life over and over and over again with all the aches and pains and hurts that are involved in mentorship. To what end? To the end that they are built up in such a way that they are also able to minister to others in a similar fashion. Folks, I've been burdened that over the past couple of years and in the coming years that we would train new Sunday school teachers. We would train new people to teach the Word of God. Because there are people here with the gift of teaching that have never taught. And I'm not satisfied just to teach them. I want to teach them how to teach others. I want to spend hours outside of Sunday school pouring into somebody's life and saying, this, this is kind of how God has been teaching me uh, of going through the text of Scripture. This is, what, this is how I go through studying the passage, and then this is how I prepare the lesson, this is how I teach it. And you're not going to be exactly the same. But God uses that, and He trains up other people so that they are raised up, and then they teach Sunday school. And some of them are going to be better teachers than I am. It's amazing how God does that. He uses weak and frail people like me, to make other people stronger. You say, well, I'm not a teacher. Okay. We always go back to the illustration of the nursery. Folks, 
You serve in the nursery. You serve in children's ministry. You've been doing it for a long time. You're very gifted. You're not done with that ministry until you pass it off to somebody else. Take a teenager who's interested in serving in, in the nursery or in Tiny Tots or in junior church or children's church and have them watch you. And then talk to them about it afterwards and say, what did you learn? You know, what, what are the kind of things you saw? Help them develop a gift to work in nursery. Show them how to hold a baby. Show them how to care for children who spit at you. That doesn't happen here, but I mean, from the other churches that that happens. I'll tell you how it really is after you sign up. Paul wasn't satisfied until he saw the Roman Christians reproduced in the sense that they were doing the very things he was training them to do. And folks, we ought not be satisfied until we are pouring ourselves into other people so that they are ministering to. True believers are not satisfied until they experience this thankfulness for other believers, this prayerfulness for other believers, this desire to see and minister to other believers. But then Paul starts to make a transition in verses 13 and 14. He makes this comment in verse 14. Look with me, please. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, folks, the word I am under obligation here in the ESV literally means one who is indebted. One who has a debt. I'm going to venture to say that most of us in here have been in debt at some time or another in our lives. Now, for those of you who haven't, praise the Lord. That's a, that's a fantastic thing. But I'm going to say probably most of us have either been in debt at one time or still in debt, whether for a small thing or for a large thing. And what's it like to be in debt? Well, you always have something hanging over your head, right? Hopefully it's a house. Okay? But you probably have a payment that's due every month or a regular period of time. And you've got to make that payment, folks. If you're sick, you've got to make that payment. If you don't feel like it, you've got to make that payment. That's part of an obligation. That's part of a debt. And Paul uses this word in a very interesting way to describe his relationship to the unsaved world around him. He says, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. Both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Why does he make that distinction? Greeks and barbarians. You have to recognize, folks, in in the New Testament world that we're talking about here, in which Paul lives, there are two different kinds of people. There are Greeks, the sophisticated people, who speak Greek. Right? Uh, I love the language of Greek. Uh, It is a sophisticated, it's a beautiful language. These people thought very highly of themselves. And guess who everybody else was? Barbarians. You want to know why they called them that? When they spoke, it sounded like this. Bar, 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 bar. It's kind of like we say gibberish, right? That's how, that's how highly they thought of themselves. We are Greeks. You are barbarians. But Paul does not say, I'm under obligation to the Greeks. Or, I am under obligation to the barbarians. I'm under obligation to both. Which tells me, folks, this. That we are under under obligation to people of every type of background. 
not just the people that look like us or talk like us or sound like us or like the same kind of things that we like. We're under obligation to all of them. So the crazy neighbor that you have next door, you're under obligation to him too. Not just, you know, the good-looking family across the street. God has placed us under obligation to them all. One of the reasons why Paul wanted to go to Rome was, was not only to preach to believers, but also to preach the gospel to lost people. And at this point, I want you to just notice. Notice these three phrases that he uses. I'm under obligation. I'm eager to preach the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel because God has placed upon him, he's placed upon him this burden, this desire to preach it. And he's not ashamed of it for some very specific reasons that we will sum up here just in a minute as we close. If you want to summarize how a believer who is where he needs to be with the Lord feels toward the loss, you can do so with these three statements. I'm under obligation, I'm eager to preach the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Like I said, he feels a sense of moral debt. He's under obligation. Paul's not concerned with what culture people are from, what their educational background is, whom they know and whom they don't know. Paul feels an obligation to give the gospel to everyone, regardless of what barriers he has to jump over, because he knows he has the answer to everybody's problems. Folks, do you recognize that? The gospel is the answer to everybody's problems. He says he's eager to preach the gospel. We know that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's for Christians as well. And Paul writes this, this letter to the Romans on the gospel because he wants to strengthen the roots of these believers' understanding of the gospel. And the greater understanding of the gospel creates in us a greater urgency and readiness to preach the gospel. It makes us eager to deliver it to others when we study it. And that's why Pastor Pete has been preaching on the gospel this entire year. He wants the word of God to, to get into our hearts, to convince us of what the gospel is, so we will, we will be ready to share the gospel. And notice, finally, he says, he's not ashamed of the gospel. And this is where I believe we often fall short. You know, a Christian insurance agent isn't afraid to sell insurance. And a Christian salesman isn't afraid to sell his wares. I know uh, Nick Culp in our growth group is not ashamed at all to sell Ford F-150s. He's quite proud of them. Some of you have bought them from him. We don't doubt the gospel always, but we are afraid of breaking a cordial and positive conversation with other people because giving the gospel, let's face it, it means we have to tell them that no matter how good of a a parent or no matter how good of a citizen or a friend they've been, they still have a huge problem. And that no matter how many good things they've done, they've done many more bad things, and if they read God's Word, they would find out about those bad things. So I want to close with this. If we're not to be ashamed of the Gospel, there has to be some very strong reasons that keep us, that keep us as believers unembarrassed of the Gospel. So what are those reasons? Well, first of all, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. 
a Christian understands that a person does not need more education, he doesn't need more money, or anything else that this society can offer to fix the problems of this life. The only thing that has the power to save people from themselves, the only thing that can change people from the inside, is the gospel. Now folks, I don't know if you're like me, I'm excited to see changes that happen in our community. I'm excited to see South Bend recovering in some ways. It's been decades of the crater of the loss of Studebaker. And we see construction going on. We see renovation going on. That's an exciting thing. And folks, people who are in power are going to say, we we need more money for better education for people because if they have better education, they'll be able to find jobs. They'll be able to provide for themselves. That's going to solve the problems of our community. And folks... I hope that we can provide good education for our people in the city. We ought to desire that. We want people to have jobs. We want them to be able to provide for their families. Folks, we ought to pray for that. But we have to understand this. Our greatest and deepest need is not better education. Our greatest and deepest need that we have is to be delivered from the wrath of God. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to deliver us. No matter how much education that we have, no matter how much money we have, no matter how many even social rights that we correct, or social wrongs that we correct in this community, we should do all these things, but they won't save us from our greatest need. And that's to be delivered from the wrath of God. Folks, we need the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. We're not ashamed because of what it is. But notice also that we're not ashamed because of whom it's for. Notice this, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is why Christians are so aggressive in their propagation of the gospel. We understand that anyone can be saved. It's not just for educated people. It's not just for people of a certain country or ethnicity. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for Mishawakans. God saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation. There isn't a person alive who's beyond the reach of God's grace. And if we believe that, if we believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes we will not be ashamed. Finally, there's a third reason we're not to be ashamed of the gospel. It's because of the message of the gospel. Paul says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, the great thing about the gospel is we're not trying to sign people up for something. It's not an aggressive program of rules and regulations that people have to abide by in order to be saved. Folks, I used to sell knives. If you've heard of Cutco knives before, I I sold them for a summer. I really enjoyed the job. I believed in those knives. My mom used those knives my entire life, growing up and far before I was alive. I watched them in action. I believed in those knives, and I felt like I was a pretty good salesman. I sold a lot of knives. And yet there's always, there's always a little bit of you inside 
that feels a little bit bad asking people for their money. I want you to buy this, and I want you to spend a lot of money to do so. Folks, we don't have that with the gospel. We're not trying to sign people up for a program. We're not trying to sell them a gimmick. No. The gospel is about something that God owns that he wants to give. It's his righteousness, and he gives it to those who believe and place their faith in him. So we hold these three reasons why we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. Because of what it is, because of whom it's for, because of the message that it contains. Folks, the gospel changes our lives. I would, I would as we close here, I would, I would ask you to consider what part of your life are you holding back from God? What part of your life do you not want the gospel to change? Do you want, not want the gospel to change your house? What do you mean my house? House is four walls. The furnace. How does the gospel change my furnace? Well, some of you, you wish the gospel would change your furnace. You've been dealing with it for a long time. Folks, when the gospel owns us, God owns everything. That means suddenly our houses are for his glory. That means our house is not our own. It's to be used for the gospel. Have people over in your home for meals to share the gospel with them. Your stuff. What of your stuff are you holding back from God? Say, I paid a lot of money for this. Everything that we have is given to us by God. We're stewards of it. We're managers to use whatever it is he's given to us for gospel purposes. So folks, you may have a TV. That's fine. Some of you don't have a TV. If you've got a TV, use it for the gospel. Invite people over to watch sports or to watch House Hunters International or whatever you like to watch, provided it brings glory to God and doesn't detract from glory to him. And make relationships with people to share the gospel with them. Your stuff is for the glory of God. It's not for us. Folks, the money that we have is not our own. God does not just own 10% of what we have. That's far too little. He wants all of it. Every single penny to our name is to God's name. So the money that you spend to fix that furnace is for the glory of God so that you can have people over and share the gospel with them. The money that you do give to the church, folks, praise God. Give it not so that you'll be recognized as a good person. Give it because God owns everything and you want to see his mission go forward. You want to reach Mishawaka. Folks, that's what we want to do as a church here. We want to reach Mishawaka. Our stuff belongs to God. Our houses belong to God. Folks, our lives belong to God. What part of your schedule are you clinging to so tightly saying, God, never take this from me? Is it because is it because you think that our time is our own? It's not. We're debtors. We have a debt. You say, I thought we were free. Absolutely. Romans chapter 6, later on in this very book, is going to say, you've been freed from slavery to your sin, so now you are free to serve Jesus Christ with everything that you have. You're free to be a, a, love, a loving and grateful slave of Jesus Christ. 
So your time belongs to Him. What part of your day are you not willing to give up for Him? Folks, the gospel changes our lives. Not a single relationship that we have goes untouched by the power of the gospel. It makes us thankful for other believers. It makes us prayerful for them. It causes us to want to see and minister to other Christians for our mutual growth in the faith. But the gospel also changes our relationship to the unsaved world. It gives us a debt that we owe to Christ to spread the good news about salvation through Jesus alone to every creature. And God has sovereignly placed us all right here in Mishawaka because he wants us to fulfill that debt here for as long as he has us here. So until God moves us on, we have a debt to Mishawaka. Our discipleship model, the last part is reach the world with the gospel. Our theme this year is building bridges in Mishawaka in 2018. We need to look inside and say, how am I, how am I building a bridge with somebody in Mishawaka? How am I building a bridge with my neighbors? How am I building a bridge with my coworkers? I have a debt to God to pay to give the gospel to them. How am I building a bridge? Not that we expect that tomorrow you're going to walk in and immediately proclaim the entire message of the book of Romans to them before you sit down for your first cup of coffee. But how are you building a relationship with them so that you can, you can pour gospel influence into their lives? And how are we praying for one another so that we could accomplish this together? The first step for us in this mission is to develop compassion for the lost. And that's something we can ask the Holy Spirit to stir in our hearts today as we leave this service. So I'm going to encourage us as we close. Let's pray that God would give us compassion to the people of Mishawaka. Let's pray. Father, we're all going. I pray that you would convince us in our hearts that we are going for Mishawaka as debtors. Debtors to the grace of God. Not that we have the power to save anyone. You alone have that power to save. But we believe that you have sovereignly chosen for people in this town to be saved we ask that we would have the privilege to be a part of that mission, to bring the gospel to those people, to see them come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way for the very first time. Give us that privilege, Father. Help us not to be people who sit in our chairs each week, think about just how good we have it, without any obligation to go out from these doors to share that with others. Help us to be so committed to the gospel that it pushes us out of our comfort zones. Share it with those who have never heard. Help us, Father, to have compassion for the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.